Jesus. And these are the words of God. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is open before us. Now open our hearts and minds, not only to the passage and its teaching for us, but for the work of the Spirit in us to apply this to our own lives, that we might be a people who faithfully follow you, no matter our days. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> as we've been going through the Gospel of John, I told you the first 11 chapters are often known as the Book of Signs. Seven particular signs that Jesus, or that John chose revealing who Jesus was. The central theme of this seventh sign, now we come to the final sign. And the central theme of this sign is found in the verses that I didn't read in the rest of this chapter, verses 25 and 26. It says, Jesus answered them, and I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Oops, got to turn the page. That was 10. 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? These were the words that Jesus gives to Lazarus' sister when, when he finally does, uh, finally does arrive. And of course, we all know the story. We've read the story. We know the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. But the glory of the resurrection and life must be displayed by way of con uh, contrast. And I think it's important that we dive, first of all, into the context of this seventh sign before we see the actual miracle of the sign itself. Death, you see, is an enemy, justly brought upon our race because of the guilt of our sin. It is not natural. Death is not natural. It is not something we are to get used to. The manifestation of death's final defeat we are told and promised, will occur, but will not occur until the second coming 
of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, speaking of this, says the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Speaking of what will occur at the final resurrection, when all are raised from the dead and the final judgment comes and those who are in Christ, found to be in Christ, are then perfected and glorified and enjoy the resurrection in a glorified heavens and earth that has been brought together. And those who are found outside, not in the book of life, outside of Christ, in those resurrected bodies will be cast into the lake of fire for eternal judgment. Death's an enemy. And so it is right to mourn when we lose a loved one. It's right to hate death. It's right to get angry over death. It is the final enemy. Every death, and therefore every affliction, is another declaration of God's sovereign delay. And that's what I want to bring out in this passage. Every death is a declaration of God's delay. And if it is true that every death is a declaration of God's delay, then every affliction, because afflictions come upon us because of our fallenness as well, and all afflictions lead up to a final affliction, a final affliction that takes our lives. And every one of those is a declaration that God is delaying. While death and every affliction is an enemy, the signs of John's gospel are given we are told that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we may have life in his name, John 20. And the context is pointing to that as much as the miracle and the sign is. He says, and, and that believing we may have life in his name. And that life, that life, including victory and glory over every affliction, even death, is our hope. And it is our hope even as we wait during those afflictions, even as we wait in death as God sovereignly delays. I'm going to do something I, I, I haven't uh, done ever before, I don't think, in a sermon. I'm going to read a lengthy passage from another sermon, Spurgeon's sermon on this passage where he begins, this is his introductory thoughts. And I think it's important because he helps us to get into the context, the story, the narrative. Like I said, you know this story, it's easy to pass over and, and not dive into what Mary and Martha and Lazarus are experiencing in these hours. And that's important because they are experiencing what you experience, what we experience in the longing for God to answer a prayer. There lived in the little village of Bethany a very happy family. There was neither father nor mother in it. The household consisted of the unmarried brother Lazarus and his sisters, Martha and Mary, who dwelt together in unity, so good and pleasant, that there the Lord commanded the blessing even for life evermore. This affectionate trio were all lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ and were frequently favored with his company. They kept open house whenever the great teacher came that way. Both for the master and for the disciples, there was always a table, a bed, and a candlestick in the prophet's chamber. And sometimes sumptuous feasts were prepared for the whole company. They were very happy and rejoiced much to think that they could be serviceable to the necessities of one so poor and yet so honored as the Lord Jesus. But alas, 
Affliction cometh everywhere. Virtue may sentinel the door, but grief is not to be excluded from the homestead. Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. If the fuel be of a log of sweet-smelling sandalwood, yet the sparks must rise, and even so the best of families must feel affliction. Lazarus sickens. It is a mortal sickness beyond the power of physicians. What is the first thought of the sisters but to send for their friend Jesus? They know that one word from his lips will restore their brother. There's no absolute need that he should even risk his safety by a journey to Bethany. He has but to speak the word and their brother shall be made whole. With glowing hopes and moderated anxieties, they send a tender message to Jesus. Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Jesus hears it and sends back the answer which had much comfort in it, but could hardly compensate for his own absence. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified through it. There lies poor Lazarus. After the message has come, he does not recover. He's a little more cheerful because he hears that his sickness is not unto death, but his pains do not abate. The clammy death sweat gathers on his brow, His tongue is dry, he is full of pains and racked with anguish. At last he passes through the iron gate of death. And there lies his corpse before the weeping sister's eyes. Why was Jesus not there? Why did he not come? Tenderhearted as he always was, what could have made him thus unkind? Why did he tarry so? Why is he so long in coming? How can his words be true? He said this sickness is not unto death, and there lies the good man cold in death, and the mourners are gathering for the funeral. Look at Martha. She's been sitting up every night watching her poor brother. No care could have been more constant, no tenderness more excessive. There's no potion in the range of her nursing which she has not compounded. This herb and the other she has gathered, and she has admitted administered all sorts of medicinal drinks and nourishing foods, and anxiously has she watched until her eyes are red for want of sleep. Jesus might have spared her all this. Why did he not? He had only to wish it, and the flush of health would have returned to the cheek of Lazarus, and there would have been no more need of this weary nursing and this killing watchfulness. What is Jesus doing Martha was willing to serve him. Will he not serve her? She's even cumbered herself about much serving for his sake, giving him not only necessities but dainties, and he will not give her what is so desirable to her heart, so essential to her happiness, her brother's life. How is it that he can send her a promise which he does not seem to keep and tantalize her hope and cast down her faith? As for Mary... She's been sitting still at her brother's side, listening to his dying words, repeating in his ear the gracious words of Jesus, which she had been wont to hear when she sat at his feet, catching the last accents of her expiring brother, thinking less about the medicine and about the diet than Martha did, but thinking more about his spiritual health and about his soul's enjoyment. She has endeavored to stay the sinking spirits of her beloved brother with words like these. He will come. He may wait, but I know him. His heart is very kind. He will come at last, and and even if he lets you sleep in death, it will be but for a little. He raised the widow's son at the gates of Nain. 
He will surely raise thee, whom he loves far more. Have you not heard how he wakened the daughter of Jairus? Brother, he will come and quicken you, and we shall have many happy hours yet. And we shall have this as a special love token from our master and our Lord that he raised thee from the dead. But why? Why was she not spared those bitter tears which ran scalding down her cheeks when she saw that her brother was really dead? She could not believe it. She kissed his forehead. And oh, how cold was that marble brow. She lifted up his hand. He cannot be dead, she said she, for Jesus said this sickness was not unto death. But the hand fell nerveless by her side. Her brother was really a corpse. And decay soon set in. And then she knew that the beloved clay was not exempt from all the dishonor which decay brings to the human body. Poor Mary. Jesus loved thee, it is said. But this is a strange way of showing his love. Where is he? Miles away he lingers. He knows your brother is sick. Yea, he knows that he is dead, and yet he abides still where he is. O oh, sorrowful mystery, that the pity of such a tender Savior should sink so far below their plumb line to gauge or mercy so should range so high beyond their power to reach. Jesus is talking of the death of his friend. Let us listen to his words. Perhaps we may find the key to his actions in the words of his lips. How surprising. He does not say, I regret that I have tarried so long. He does not say, I ought to have hastened, but even now it is not too late. Hear and marvel, wonder of wonders. He says, I am glad that I was not there. Glad. Glad. The word is out of place. Lazarus by this time stinks in his tomb, and here is the Savior. Glad? Martha and Mary are weeping their eyes out for sorrow, and yet their friend Jesus is glad? It is strange. It is passing strange. However, we may rest assured that Jesus knows better than we do, and our faith may therefore sit still and try to spell out his meaning where our reason cannot find it at the first glance. I am glad, says he, for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Ah, we see it now. Christ is not glad because of sorrow, but only on account of the result of it. He knew that this temporary trial would help his disciples to a greater faith. And he so prizes their growth in faith that he is even glad of the sorrow which occasions it. He does as good as say, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to prevent the trouble. For now that it is come, it will teach you to believe in me. And this shall be much better for you than to have been spared the affliction. God delays. There are delays of God's perfect and powerful works of salvation, healings, resurrection in everyone's life, in everyone's life in numerous ways. And these delays cause deep trauma and pain and separation, physical and mental anguish and spiritual doubts. We're right to wonder what these three friends, these close friends of Jesus, whom he loved, would be wondering and worrying over as they sent word to Jesus 
And then he delays coming to them. Again, look at verse 5 and 6 carefully. They're connected, these two sentences. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. The deep truth is that the two-day delay was motivated by love, by Jesus' love for Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. It's right there. When God makes us wait, when God makes us wait, it is a sign that he purposes to bless, but in his own way. And his delay and our waiting so often appears so wrong. Yet we're not to interpret God's love through the lens of our afflictions, and that is our failure. To interpret God's love through the lens of our affections. Quite the opposite. We are to interpret our afflictions in the lens of God's love. A.W. Pink says, The dealings of the Father's hand must ever be looked at in the light of the Father's heart. Let me say that again. The dealings of the Father's hand must ever be looked at in the light of the Father's heart. As Jesus' delays, we are forced to wait. And as we wait, he invites us to cry out to him. We're filled with psalms of lament, of waiting for God. Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God, and lighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Lest those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Psalms like these are given to us that we might sing, reflect, cry out, argue, complain before God while we wait. And as we wait on the Lord, that is, as we wait with faith, like that psalmist as he complains before God and then in the midst of it, realizing that he's still complaining before God, his God, the one that he knows, knows him and knows his situation, and with faith is able to say, I know he deals bountifully with me. And as we wait with that kind of faith, we are told and promised that we will be strengthened in the midst of the affliction. Isaiah eight seventeen, And I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Isaiah 40, 31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. There is a waiting upon the Lord, a waiting in faith upon the Lord that strengthens. That strengthens us. Not just strengthens our resolve, but strengthens our affections to God, towards God draws us closer to him. 
and he closer to us. This is the context of the death of Lazarus. In verse 7, then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, and I wonder at that moment, the two days of delay, we've, we've kind of taken a look at what, the, what, what Martha and Mary and Lazarus would have thought. The disciples, I'm, I'm imagining, thought there's, that during this two days of delay, they're thinking, good, he's, he's not going. I mean, if Lazarus is going to die, he's sick, but if he, if he goes into Judea again, it's, it's over. And so he, finally, after two days, he shocks them. He says, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going there again? <laughs> so now the disciples are tested. Now the followers of Christ here are also tested. They may have rested in the fact that Jesus didn't get up and, and go right away into in Bethany. Imagine most wanted posters of your leader all over the country, and you're going to waltz into Judea with him. Yeah, I'm one of his. <laughs> Jesus had, it seemed, only barely escaped alive from Judea. We saw this in chapter 7, twice in chapter 10. And we saw in both of those situations where all we're told is that Jesus, surrounded by those who are going to stone him for blasphemy laws, he just walks through them. Somehow he escapes. Somehow he gets through them. But in irony, his quest now to go back to bring life to his friend will bring forth the Sanhedrin decision to put Jesus to death. Look at the end of chapter 11 here in terms of what happens after this, after this miracle takes place. Then there's this great debate again amongst the Jewish authorities. And in verse 53, um, they decide then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Not just stop his ministry, they plotted to put him to death. They made plans. Jesus knew the Father had given him a work to do, though, and that nothing could stop that work from being done any more than the night can stop the 12 hours of the day. That's what he means as he says in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. While you're walking in the day, that is in the light of God's plan, obedience, as it's laid out before you and you follow the Lord, um, night cannot come upon you. You cannot get outside of the will of God if you're obediently walking in the light. That's interesting. Um, in, in their day, also 12 hours, um, we might think of, well, 12 hours in the day, but, you know, we're starting to see now that we don't actually get 12 hours of daylight, nor did they in Judea. I think it's, uh, they would, a little bit less than us, but the change would be from a 10-hour day of light to a 14-hour day of light. What's interesting is, in, in their day, without instruments to, to measure out a particular hour, every day was 12 hours. Every day was marked out by 12 hours, so throughout the year, your hours would grow longer or shorter um, according to the sun which is important to think about because when he says 12 hours, uh, there's 12 hours in the day, he means there's daylight and no night comes until that those 12 hours are done. And then in response to their timidity, Jesus now speaks to them again uh, that to not follow him in such times is to walk in the night 
a place of great stumbling. I think there's a good warning here in verse 10. He says, but if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. To not walk with Jesus, to not walk with Jesus even in a time that is dangerous, even in a time that is going to threaten your life, but you know that Jesus has called you into such acts of obedience is to walk in the night, is to stumble. Jesus says, we're going to Judea. Well, he says, I am going to Judea, and then we see what happens from that. <coughs> Reminds me of when aides to Stonewall Jackson commented on his lack of fear amid the flying bullets. Jackson is reported to have replied, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Where does courage come from? Courage comes from faith in the Lord. Courage comes from faith in his um, overall sovereignty over all things. God intends to use your life for his glory and the salvation of others. What is the chief end of your life? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What is God's chief end for your life? What's God's chief end for your life? That he would be glorified and that you would enjoy him forever. The question might be, do you hold lesser agendas more dear? Have you gotten off track into what is your, what is your final purpose, your central reason for living, for existing. Christian, why has, why has Christ died for you? Why have you been made alive? Is it, not, is it not to glorify him? To glorify him and to bring his message of salvation in life and word and deed to all around you? Why would you hold lesser agendas more dear? Not only that, his sovereign afflictions are always for your good. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. Faith, faith is the natural response to the faithfulness of God. Faith is not this kind of pixie dust thing that just kind of floats out in the air and you hope that some of it falls on top of you. Faith is the natural response to the revealed faithfulness of God. Do you have that? Do you see his faithfulness? Have you heard his faithfulness? Because in the midst of affliction and before um, a death, you need to know his faithfulness and respond to that in the darkest times. Faith is that natural response to the faithfulness of God. And in the darkest times, that faith keeps us leaning into the mysterious twists and turns of God's story and leaning into them with hope that there is a wonderful end to the story. In the dark chapter in the middle, there's a wonderful end to this story. This is the context of the death of Lazarus. I want to talk a little bit about this metaphor that is used, sleep and death here. Jesus there's going back and forth again with the disciples. These things he said to them, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. 
If, if he's just sick and, and that's causing him to sleep, well, if he's going to get well, then as Jesus spoke, though, of his death, and he says to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Sleep is a figure of speech. It's used frequently in the Old and New Testaments. Moses was told that he would sleep with his fathers in Deuteronomy 31, as David was also in 2 Samuel 7. You really find it all throughout the, the Old Testament, the idea of, of sleeping with the fathers as a metaphor for death. And believers are told that we shall sleep until the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. On the one hand, sleep is similar to what we might say when someone has passed. It's a, it's a, a softer way sometimes than saying this person has died. But there's something different about this word and the connection with death as well. Um, and I think that is why this, this word is used throughout the scriptures to speak of death. Not because the writers of the New Testament are afraid to speak of pointed and hard things like death, but rather because there are things to understand about sleep, and especially for those who sleep, whose sleep is asleep in faith. So it's, it's more than a simple metaphor. I think there's a deep reality here. Sleep comes as a welcome relief after our work, and so with death. It is a time of rest, and so with death. Good sleep shuts out the sorrows of life and fits us for the duties of the next day, and so with our physical death. For the believer, the events leading to death can be one of life's most difficult trials. But having passed through that gate, we are promised that our souls are immediately brought into the presence of Jesus while our bodies rest in the graves. Ecclesiastes 12, then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, yet we are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. At the death of believers, their souls are immediately brought into the presence of the Lord Jesus. This is a great rest. This is a great ending of all sorrows. This is a great ending of all pain and suffering. This is a great beginning of the preparation for the final resurrection of all things. That's what's promised to us in our sleep, in our death. Verse 15, And I'm glad for your sake that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Jesus has particular intentions in this delay, and in this we are to learn in every delay. What is, what is God delaying to answer as you plead with him? And, and now, what you are not to learn from here, this is to stop pleading. What you're not to learn from this is to sit back in some kind of stoic reservation that, well, God is going to do whatever he wants to do. It doesn't matter what I do. No, prayer is is work, and it is the work by which God moves in many ways. But prayer is not our whistling our genie up in the bottle to do as we please what we want, when we want it. We are to plead with God. We are to cry out to God. But what we are to understand as we're crying out to God, as we're pleading to God, as we're making known to Him our desires, we are to know that His delay... His delay somehow is for our good and His glory. 
which ought to encourage all the more to pray, to lean in, to partner with God in the changing and transforming and the remaking of the world around us as he answers prayer, as he works in the lives, really works in the lives of believers, really works in the world in, in countless ways, but never, never tethered to us like some kind of slave. Rather, instead, provoking us to join with him in ruling the world, changing the world. Thomas. <laughs> I want to call Thomas the Eeyore of the group. So I'll read that. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Thomas, kind of, he hints at, at growing doubts in Jesus' words and actions. Do you have growing doubts in Jesus' words and actions? He's, he does not abandon Jesus, but he's far from believing that something grand and glorious will come from Jesus' decision to go there. And this is the Thomas who will later be known as Doubting Thomas after the resurrection. In John 20, 25, J J he's the one who doesn't see the resurrected Jesus the first time and says, unless I see in his hands the print of nails, put my finger into the print of nails, put my hand to the side, I will not believe. And, and Jesus is kind to Eeyore's. And melancholics. Next time Jesus shows Thomas, come here. Put your hand on my side, my hands. And Thomas falls down. My Lord and my God. I take great, get great consolation in that. Great consolation in that because God works with melancholics too. So, what do we see? What is the context? before we get to the miracle, the sign. Here's the context. Every death is another declaration of God's sovereign delay. Every death. Many of you were able to be at Antonia's memorial yesterday. What a glorious gathering. In remembrance of the resurrection and a celebration of her life and of the affliction that she went through, waiting, pleading with God and of her faithful service to God by faith in the midst of it. Waiting for God's, in the midst of God's sovereign delay. Well, and, and I want you to see, if, every, if this is true, if every death is another declaration of God's sovereign delay, then every death and therefore every affliction is another declaration of God's sovereign delay. And every delay is always for one reason only. The glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Every delay is that God may be glorified through the delay, through the affliction. Every delay is for the glory of God. What is your life for? What is your chief end? then your affliction is accomplishing that. God's delay is accomplishing that. In some mysterious way, the twists and turns of life, the unanswers, the darkness, the pain, the suffering, the affliction, the trauma, the doubts, they are all for the glory of God. 
For every Christian, in every affliction, the Lord may be pleased to allow. Pleased to allow. I was glad, Jesus said. For every Christian, in every affliction, the Lord may be pleased to allow. He knows that it leads not to death, but to eternal life. Now, I have to say, it would be wrong of me not to also say that for the one who dies outside of Christ's forgiving grace, then death does not deliver him from the sorrows of this life. Outside, outside of the saving work of Jesus Christ in one's life, death does not deliver you from sorrow or grief or pain. Rather, it introduces one to a fearful place where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. For such, it is important that you do not become comfortable with your impending death. You must flee now from the wrath to come. Seek the Lord while he may be found, for there is no hope beyond the grave. But for the believer, and praise God for the believer, while death is a true enemy, we proclaim hope. 1 Corinthians 15. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. This is our hope. This is our faith when God delays. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Precious Savior, strengthen the faith of those who hear your voice and open the ears of those who do not, that they may be saved from the torment of impending death and the full judgment of God. Teach us to cry out to you properly in the midst of our afflictions and mourn rightly at the death of your loved ones. And yet see with one another the fullness of your intentions your love for your people and our destiny, everlasting life in the presence of God forever and ever and ever. And amen.